0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, the podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan, but more importantly, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, uh, Dr. Christopher Fleming. Um, we'll be talking about a book that he, along with three others, co-edited called Science and Society in the Sanskrit World. It's brand new, uh, published by Brill. Christopher, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hi, Raj. It's great to see you.
0: So you're currently a junior research fellow at Oxford, uh, which I failed to mention as I introduced you. Uh, but I wanted to say, uh, having taught at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, continuing studies for about three, three and a half years now, I had the good pleasure of finally visiting. You know, you know, we're in a different world, when you can teach at a place and not be there physically, I finally visited it oh. I want to say two, three months ago, uh, after one of my retreats out in UK. And it is enchanting there, I gotta say.
1: It's very nice in the summer in particular. It's not as nice in the um the winter when it's all rainy. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, thankfully I was there at a nice time inspiring uh buildings for sure. Um so first let's uh let us perhaps uh acknowledge uh the the others uh who um, made this work possible. So, you didn't edit this alone, did you?
1: No, thank God. Who helped you? Vishal Sharma, one of my uh, cohort mates here at Oxford, and then Tuka Knudsen, um, who is at SUNY Unita, um, and AJ Misra, who I was a Marie Curie fellow in Copenhagen, I believe at the time, um, but he just got a nice job. I can't remember where, um, but he's doing great. All very Fantastic. nice. Fantastic. And I am very grateful for their help.
0: What was it like? What was it like with four? of you co-editing, I just had my first co-editing um, gig. Uh, um, well, actually, no, I, I co-edited some some, pe- some uh, conference proceedings, but they're a little more straightforward. Uh, but McComas Taylor and I co-edited this volume called um, "Visions and Revisions um, in Sanskrit Narrative," and mm. there, there were, I think, eighteen contributors. We didn't even, we didn't even plan that. Maybe the gods did. Uh, it'll be out very soon. But I have, you know, I it's the first time I really had this more extended, you know, multi-year co-editing project so I wonder what was it like given that there were four of you and you know what were, was there a particular division of labor or uh, you know p- let us peek behind the curtain a bit for the listeners
1: Sure. Um, the difficulty of editing in a fresh for professor minkowski is that he's very good at many disciplines and those disciplines are rarely mastered by any individual so finding people who could cover articles on Shastra, mathematics uh, ayurveda dharma shastra commentaries on various texts was very difficult. And it worked quite well for the four of us to have different expertise. I work on Dharma Shastra among other things, Vishal's great at the Mahabharata, Tuka and AJ are very much plugged into the exact sciences and Sanskrit and and that very specialized kind of world. So it it worked out well in the end in that we all had areas of expertise that we could focus on edit the articles for that um, and try to make some kind of coherent unifying theme for the volume based on our own expertise. Mm. What's the first uh, It's a collection of articles to celebrate the retirement of a prominent fellow in the academy. Um, and so it was very nice to do that for Professor Minkowski who was uh, my supervisor, I think Katuka's supervisor or co-author at some point and Vishal's as well. It was a difficult task um, given the subject of the Festschrift in that we had 17 articles on, not 17 different topics, but essentially 17 different topics. Um, and, and we approached different presses and, and and Burl has a Sir Henry Welcome Asian series that's devoted to scientific treatises. And that seemed like a nice fit, but it was a bit of a challenge for us because they wanted us not to just have a series of articles celebrating someone who could work in different disciplines, but actually make some productive argument about the thematic unity of all these different things, um, which was not easy.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so many of our, many of our listeners are actually um, colleagues uh, who would be at, at very least vaguely, if not very familiar with the name, Christopher Minkowski. Um And for those who are listening, who are beyond the Academy, um, he is a towering figure. In the field of, uh, when I say Sanskrit studies, because um, as evidenced by the wide array of papers and uh, <laughs> the necessity of more editors, um, he is a true scholar. he. Is, he the, there is uh, probably not a branch of of uh, a genre or um, an aspect of Sanskritic culture about which he wouldn't know a great deal. So just to contextualize it for the audience and also to return to that important idea of a unifying theme, you know, I had this, this this idea in the back of my brain, uh, 2019, 2020, I thought, you know, there is this uh, Piranha Piranhas publication in 93 uh, in the, you know, in the field of of narrative studies, uh, Piranha studies, you can say. Um, uh, It's about a generation. It's about time. We need something, you know, kind of to take the temperature. And of course, Really, the, the, the papers in the, the volume that I just co-edited are all about Sanskrit narrative, but really there's little else that unifies them. So I can see how such a wide range of studies would pose a challenge to, well, how do we, you know, how do we brand this? How do we understand this as a whole? Why is the book called Science and Society in the Sanskrit world?
1: Well, my own writing style, I suppose, is to pick two themes and then put it in Sanskrit. So the first book was Ownership and Inheritance in Sanskrit Jurisprudence. The next book is Equity and Trusts in Sanskrit Jurisprudence. So it felt natural to select two essential themes and put it in Sanskrit something. which I suppose there's some, I don't know, intellectual value in simplicity, But, but more to the point, I suppose, the the series that we published in is a scientific series. There's a scientific element to many of the articles in the volume, and there's also a sociological or a sociology of knowledge element in many of the other contributions to the volume, so it it seemed natural in that sense. The the difficulty, of course, is that science is a a highly charged term, historically and in in the contemporary context, interculturally, all these things, and so I wrote the introduction, it fell on me (laughs) to spend a couple of months doing that. Um, And I knew very little about the history of science. It was really fun to read about intellectual history of science as a discipline. And so in the volume, we use science in in a couple of different ways. One is that knockabout sense of science. Let me just read a little quote because it's a bit easier to do that. So we use science in a twofold sense, the first is the common knockabout use of science as the rigorous mathematically informed theorization of the natural world, the use of testable experimentation and empirical evidence, which of course is, is, I think what sort of every non-specialist would think of when they think of science, math, space, empirical view of the world. And, and to a certain extent that is, is is what the Welcome series is built for working on Asian analogs to Western science astronomical tables, medical charts, these kinds of things, but it really wouldn't fit the full volume. And so in a bit of my reading, I discovered that, well, that modern notion of science has been deconstructed and problematized by many people. Uh, One of the arguments against it, of course, is that it's used as a a yardstick with which to wrap the knuckles of of, of non-Western communities. It was historically used in that sense to sort of separate the West from the rest, or people would respond by saying, well, in China, there really was science in the modern sense in the Ming dynasty or so forth. Um, and so we use that yardstick in a certain way to sort of peek at the normative scientific value of some of the articles. Barbara Sojkova has a great article where she reads some different Vedic texts with an eye to modern zoology, to sort of figure out what are the classifications the different kinds of cows, or um, there's a great article on tetanus in the Atarva Veda by Elizabeth Tucker. So that that kind of thing. And, and of course, mm. Shastra and Ayurveda, that would be scientific in that sense. But the mm. broader intervention that we wanted to make, or at least that I wanted to make, and, and maybe the volume does it and maybe it doesn't, um, is to think about a more general notion of science that before the modern era was, was common in the West and in the East, um, namely it's sort of organized knowledge systems. And for centuries, the medieval Latinate academies in in, in Christendom operated under a principle of the science of grammar, the science of arithmetic, so on and so forth. Um, And of course, theology was the queen of the sciences. And in that general sense, there's a great deal of literature where viewing science from that perspective really opens up new vistas for looking at non Western scientific traditions. Um, So there's a whole bunch of, of articles in our volume that use, that are scientific in the sense that they follow. Um, Emic Sanskrit theories of, of organized knowledge, and those are some of the best ones. I would recommend to the readers Bob Goldman's very, very nice reading of, of, of various commentators' defense of of, 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 for example, the Pandavas at the court of Virata and the Virata Parvan, where he uses, where the commentators use a very intricate science of grammar to exonerate um, Yudhishthira and the brothers from the heinous crime of lying to one's elder um, so so that's the intervention and 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 hopefully it comes clear maybe in the introduction and, and if someone really does wade through all 17 articles they might get that sense that there's a unifying theme to
0: indeed and um also this book is it, it the individual uh, uh, the, the vast majority of the individual contributors well, well they're all obviously brilliant but the vast majority of them are quite distinguished in and of themselves and, and in their fields. And so irrespective of waiting through the 17, this is certainly is a sumptuous buffet pending one's interests where a dish or two might, might do the job to sate one's intellectual curiosity or um, need for a literature review for a dissertation, etc., whatever that might be. Um, so perhaps we can talk a bit about the, the, the structure of the book.
1: Sure. Tell us about the parts.
0: Uh,
1: the first part is Vedic Studies. It has four very nice articles in it. Barbara Sojkova, as I already mentioned before, a doctoral student of Professor Minkowski. Now she's a librarian at All Souls College, and I'm sure she'll do great things in the future. has this wonderful article on the story of cows sacrificing, and we get a sort of taxonomy of various uh, Vedic bovines using a mixture of sort of modern zoological science, but also careful philological reading of, of Vedic texts. Elizabeth Tucker has this great article on um, tetanus in the Atharva Veda. She's got a great quote to the effect that despite the fact that people wouldn't have a microbiological explanation for why tetanus would happen, nevertheless, the, the Vedic rishis were able to do empirical observation and they make some comments in their healing mantras that reveal a genuine knowledge of, of, of tetanus. They wouldn't call it that, of course. Um, that, that matches much of what we know today. Uh, Stephanie Jamison has an article on a Chwi uh, formation in the Rig Veda. And while it's sort of locked in in technical philological vocabulary, the end result is that she uncovers basically a sort of slang formation in the Vedas. And we get a, a sense, I think, of the sort of living tradition of Vedic Sanskrit as a language, which all too often gets um, alighted in our hyper-philological approach to things. So it's a very sweet, Insight into Vedic language and its cultural context. And then, of course, um, there's an article from John Lowe on the Rigveda Parapata, which I'm not quite qualified to comment on, other than that John is an excellent Vedist and he does great work according to the system of the Rigveda Parapata. And anyone who is interested in that subject would learn a great deal from it.
0: Okay, so that is section one, part one, the Vedic world. Mm. Um, let's see. Why don't we? Uh, turn to part two then perhaps we'll do it because the papers are so rich but there's there's such breadth i think it makes sense to perhaps touch on each and say a word about each if we can sure and so part two is uh, astral and medical sciences
1: so this is a very technical section for which i am eternally grateful for tuca and aj's editorial support
0: that uh, is so technical there are charts and graphs in the section by the way <laughs>
1: charts and graphs. um so what to say do we just go one by one is that of, of interest perhaps uh, yeah i think
0: i think we could i think what would be great is if we said a quick word just introducing the different topics just so they know it's there so they can look it up if they need it sure um so talk about yeah, go for it
1: a great bit on a meru which is a a diagram to to solve mathematical problems. There was a time in Oxford when a a very clever gentleman from India, I want to say one of the IITs came into a Sanskrit class and posed some of these mathematical riddles. Arjuna fires five arrows every 10 seconds and um, Karna fires so many back and somehow it turns into a quadratic equation. And I of course was hopelessly lost. Um, but in that vein of of literature, Takanori gives some different ways of solving mathematical problems. And and they're very interesting and, and the and the charts are quite nice. It was a little bit beyond me in my limited mathematics. Um, but if that is a genre that appeals to you, it, it is absolutely mm.
0: yeah. okay. And so our the next chapter, you could just we could just maybe say the name of each author and the title and then. If you want to make a comment, you can, just to give them a sense of the range in the section.
1: Um, so Setsuro Ikeyama's essay examines Nilakanta Somayajan's 15th century Jyotiru Um I'm afraid it is also beyond me, other than to say there's a whole volume of Jyotishastra literature that's devoted to the mm. reconciliation of various schools' approach to pranic cosmology. Mm. Um, Reconciling them requires mathematical aptitude that I don't possess. Um, perhaps
0: we can uh, perhaps we can, can say, say a word. we can say a word about uh, why Jyotishastra? What was uh, Minkowski's influence?
1: Oh, um well, Minkowski's once worked at Brown University with David Pingree. Mm. Of course, is, is the most famous Jyotishastran of them all. And as I understand it, his interest in the Mahabharata came from an investigation. Of Nila Kanta's commentary in the Bhishma Parvan of the Mahabharata, where there's a great deal of cosmological analysis. Um, and I know there are various competing schools of, of, of Puranic and, and Jyotishastric thought about how the universe operates. And reconciling those systems requires a great deal of ingenuity. Um, and, and my understanding is that even today, the pundits work very hard to make the cylindrical systems um, work very well in India. And my hat is off to them because it's very <laughs> much
0: beyond me. So Yeah, the, these are very much technical articles for those interested. We'll just mention the title and the, to- and, or the topic and the author. And then oh, we'll yeah, move yeah, on yeah, to yeah, the, yeah. the next session. Yes. Sure. So the next chapter is, chapter seven is?
1: Integrating Logarithm Concepts and Synthesis of Sanskrit, Muslim, and European Astronomy in 18th Century Jaipur by Kevin C. Montel and Kim Plofker. It's a great article in, um, what is it, Jai Singh of Jaipur was trying to impress the Mughal emperor, He wanted to create a harmonized view of of, of trigonomic tables for various cosmological phenomena. And in order to get the most cutting edge scientific tables, he turned to the Jesuits in Agra, who got some people to come from, from Portugal to come and bring some documents. And the end result is this wonderfully cosmopolitan, wonderfully international, view of science and so all the sort of technical aspects of it are beyond me the sociological aspect is fascinating to see all these moving parts of a globalized world come together to create a genuinely unique and synthetic model of the well, universe
0: fascinating and you know even when we're looking at a monograph um we tend to leave the technical aspects for the author and the specialists and really it is those um broad themes that are of interest. So not to worry that you have not mastered all of this minutiae.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My ignorance is on full display. Here.
0: <laughs> no, no, you're not. Um, uh, this isn't a doctoral defense. You're good. Um, generalizations are not only permitted, but they're welcome on podcasts. So you're good.
1: Okay. Lovely. Lovely. Um, so the eighth article is cylindrical time in Brahmanical India origin and development by Johannes Bronkhorst. It's a great article he traces where the Yuga system came from and its ancient origins. Described the Buddhist and post-Buddhist world, um, and it really opened some 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 new doors for me in understanding where a cyclical notion of time came from in India it, in the first it, place.
0: It really is fascinating. I mean, they're all fascinating, but of course, we will have different interests. Um, and, and some of these articles are actually uh, they're almost um, they're almost paradigm shifting. There's some really brilliant articles in here, actually. Okay, after uh Broncos article, we have chapter nine, uh, Charaka on the human being, a new translation of the Charaka Samhita, uh, Shari Rastana. To...
1: It's a very nice translation for its own reasons. It's just very good to have a translation of the Shari Rastana. But what I liked about it is that people might say, well, the Ayurvedic view of human physiology is, is outdated. It doesn't really work. But it bears a great similitude to say William Harvey's investigation of the human heart and an Aristotelian model that that early modern or even medieval views of the human body had a philosophical basis and that people could be a, a forerunner for modern physiology without sharing the same, I don't know, metaphysics or something as, as a modern mm. physician or something at a research institute would have, which is yes. really, really fun to see that.
0: Um, and- And um, what's fascinating about Ayurveda is that uh, modern Ayurvedic um, doctors, particularly in the West, they're actually trained uh, as medical doctors typically. And it's not that they would defer to the subtle um, philosophical and metaphysical um, aspect of self, it's that they somehow overlay them. Mm -hmm. or they will which is fascinating right it's it's that in many ways they sort of complete each other from the perspective of ayurveda the only reason i know this is because i had a number of health hiccups uh quite a number 2020 2021 and um I thought, okay, well, I have to think outside out of the box because these 14 different things must be somehow related. So I went to go see an Ayurvedic doctor, if you can believe it. And within five minutes, it's like, yes, it's this and this and this, and this is what they call it the in Western science and this and this. I was just so utterly fascinated. It blew my mind open. But enough of my confessions about my personal life. It is an interesting um, topic and it's great to have a translation rendered into English. Yeah. Very okay, nice. so, uh, so that's... Part two, astral and medical sciences, there are four parts altogether. Uh, I suspect you will be a little bit interested in part three, statecraft and jurisprudence.
1: This is more in my wheelhouse. And thank you, patient listener, for <laughs> slowly working your way through these articles. Some of them are very interesting. It's, it's worth the wait. So statecraft and jurisprudence, yes, very much in my wheelhouse. The 10th the chapter is to kill or not to kill. The hermeneutics of ethical axiom Ahinsa by Patrick Olivelle the Dharma Raja in our field. It's an excellent article, Technical Jurisprudence, how to describe instances in Dharma Shastra where violence is either condoned or it's enjoined. And it's, I would recommend anyone who's teaching a class on, um, say Dharma and, and gets that perennial question of, well, don't the Pandavas hunt, doesn't Rama hunt? How does that make any sense? How does one justify war in a Dharma Shastric or a Dharmic context? And Patrick has a great many answers to that question, or further food for thought. It mm. kind of comes up in every i think introduction to Hinduism that's out there that 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 the great authors of that the great heroes of the epics um engaged in violence. And, and, mm. and nevertheless, a core moral value, as I see it, at least, you can do more. Well,
0: it's um, more as uh, podcast Raj is uh, utterly fascinated by the existence of this volume and its and the rite of passage that it commemorates. Hmm. Um, scholar raj particularly salivates over this uh part three insofar as you know uh, endlessly fascinating i find the tension between ascetics and kings and this whole poverty and liberty this what i call the double helix and there there's some really interesting observations that when scholar raj actually gets some bandwidth to churn out um some scholarship later this summer should actually pay very close attention to some of these articles but please go on by the way the author of the next article. Happens to be a, a freelance RA for me. It's hilarious. It's great, actually.
1: Oh, yeah, Walters is a very nice fellow. He just finished his doctorate. I, I think he's in Paris or something. He
0: is. He is indeed. Uh, well, when you work for yourself, you sort of, you know, put your out. <laughs> I'm self employed theoretically. So it's it's kind of interesting that I would even have an RA, but here we are.
1: Um, his article is Ascetics as Royal Advisors in the Mahabharata. And Walters examines the ascetic values that go alongside the political values of someone who's going to be a Purohita, a Maha Mantra and these kinds of things, that there's a moral value to being a political advisor, at least from the stance of the Mahabharata and the Arthashastra. And, and when we pick up books, you know, um, Chanakya for business or something like this, kind of thing I see on the train in India. It's, it's good to remember that that even sort of political instrumentality in ancient India in in Shastra and in epic was measured by moral considerations. And, and Walters does a very nice job of, of bringing that element to light that we shouldn't be too quick to embrace the Machiavellian tendencies of Kautilya or his adaptation in the Mahabharata that, it, that people should be moral. and And that is part of India's great contribution to the world is political instrumentality modulated by moral virtue. At least I think so. Mm. And Walter's, I think, makes a compelling case as well. Well, I I
0: would definitely be inclined to agree, whether I agree or disagree, neither here nor there, and I actually rarely share my personal opinion on the podcast, (laughs) but, you know, but, but I, but I, I, without question, um, I mean, my personal opinion on the scholarship, I share my opinions all the time about Hindu studies and, and life in general, but, but my job is just to look at the scholarship, um, and highlight it. But without question, I think I would, um, I would agree. Um, what was I doing? I was doing something. Uh, oh, I was doing an article for the International Society for the Red Cross, and they're really interested in cross-cultural views on, uh, you know, it, it's their job to sort of um, to work out international humanitarian law, right, which strives to reduce harm wherever possible during armed conflict. And so, I did a couple of articles um, with them on sort of um, Hindu approaches to violence and and the whole just war. Um, angle and without question over half of the the article is mahabharata just to share that this is sort of foundational classical hinduism this is the integration of, uh, of the vedic and the uh, sort of the ascetic world and yes you have kautilya of course and that's important but that's more of an app in this greater operating system that the you know the mahabharata i think very consciously is trying to to work out so i'd be inclined to agree what do I know?
1: <laughs> well, power without virtue is a very dangerous thing, and it has been that way, I'm assuming, across cultures and time. Yes, indeed. Shall and, I move uh, Yeah, please. The 12th chapter is from Frederick Smith. Um, Real settlement in constructed wilderness, Grama and Aranya revisited. He takes a, um almost psychological perspective of the wilderness and settlement and looks at various healing shrines that he's visited that are associated with the cult of Draupadi and the Pandavas, It's absolutely fascinating if you're interested in the lived reality of the Mahabharata in in sort of real India, not just a textual universe that that a lot of philologists inhabit. It's very nice. It's it's very fun. And it gives a sense beyond sort of the technical Shastric categories of of, of forest and wilderness and settlement and so forth into their psychological realms, which which I think people would really enjoy. Mm they have an interest in folk healing and so forth
0: great and now that brings us to the fourth and the final section of um of this collection which is called sanskrit intellectuals and their communities
1: oh I'm i'm terribly sorry raj but the last article in this section oh pardon me there is oh, one more he's such a nice person and so accomplished that it would be wrong not to talk about his contribution
0: i'm, I'm sure he's lovely
1: but he gives a chapter called, I'm just getting the table of contents out, Forest People in the Kautilya Arta Shastra. It's a very nice technical look at the categories of of forest people, atavis, um, in in the true political science of Kautilya. And it's quite interesting to see how the forest had dangers, but also benefits, not in the psychological sense, but in the political sense, how forest people could be valuable to use against a rival king, you organize the forest people. And if you're interested in the art of Shastra, it's very good. So to give Thomas' his uh, due, that is-
0: Absolutely. Um, and now, art right, for Sanskrit intellectuals and their communities.
1: So this is our um, society aspect, I suppose, the sort of the bulk of the sociological work, or the sociology of knowledge happens here. My favorite article from the volume is the 14th chapter, Guardians of Truth, Commentarial Interventions in Support of the Heroes of the Sanskrit Epics. Um, that's fantastic. It's just fantastic. Bob Goldman does great work on everything, but this one he hit out of the park. And it's wonderful to see Nilekanta defend Yudhishthira and the brothers and Draupadi when they from my perspective, boldly lie to Virata. How could they not, if they said who they really were when they introduced themselves, the gig would be up and they would be back into exile. But there is a very strong moral sentiment against lying to one's elders. So how could they possibly be moral paragons and at the same time make blatant lies? And the answer, I guess, if you're- And the answer is? is you use an intricate series of rules of interpretation to make their bold statements that seem to be saying one thing actually say something else. So that I suppose if if poor Virata only hears the, the, the easy understanding of what they are saying, they can't be at fault. And that our Pandavas are virtuous in the sense that they care so much about not lying, that they speak in a way which both tells the truth and conveys on a superficial level to their audience. Something that is not the truth. And it's very sweet. And Neela Kanta does a great job of doing this. And, and yes, it's fun to see sort of commentarial virtuosity, but it's even better to see it in the service of a moral value that I think we all more or less share.
0: Um, well, Satya and Himsa are typically the top two when listed among the five uh, ascetic precepts. Um, now, the next one is a chapter called Disruptive Readings, a Sanskrit Literary Commentary as Translation by Devin Patel. What does he say?
1: So Devin's a great Alankara Shastra scholar, among other hats that he wears, um, and gives us a sort of phenomenology of various kinds of commentary. And that's great and very useful for anyone who's working sort of in technical literary studies. But the beautiful takeaway from it, particularly in relation to the volume being for Professor Minkowski, is that he's able to give us a sense of nilakanta as an individual based on that typology of commentary. So what sets nilakanta apart, what makes him unique as a scholar individual who lived in time and place is that he has a voice of his own as a commentator. And and it might be harder to recognize that if we didn't have a good language, a good terminology of different commentarial moves that one could make. And and once you have that terminology, it's easier to see what makes nilakanta nilakanta. so it's it's lovely, absolutely lovely in the technical sense of let's learn more about commentary and the language to do it, but even more so in the ability to look at individual commentators and see what makes them tick. And that goes right back to science and society. That when we mm. are aware of the science of grammar and logic and astronomy, it helps us see the social worlds of the individuals who operated in those disciplines.
0: Fascinating. The penultimate chapter is uh, by Jonathan Duquette. It's called Debating God in the Delta. Uh, Trimurti, Transcendence and Hierarchy in Late Advaita Vedanta.
1: Jonathan's an excellent scholar of Vedanta and the social history of various Vedantins. He has an excellent uh, monograph that came out on Apayadikshita. Dikshita. And a Paya Dikshita is one of my favorite intellectuals in Indian history because he was ferocious in wit, detailed in logic, and in, in incredibly influential um, to pretty much every scholar nowadays. If you're interested in debates about, Ishwara in Vedanta, you couldn't be happier than reading this chapter. It isn't <laughs> a cup of tea, I, I would say, um, but but it is extraordinarily detailed. The, it was the most difficult chapter in the volume to index because there's so much information that you know, indexing one page of it took half an hour as a thing like this. So if you're interested in that kind of aspect of Indian intellectual history, I couldn't recommend it more highly.
0: And last, but certainly not least, um, chapter 17, uh, um, uh, go my sweet, uh, a Brahmin woman of property in 17th century Western India.
1: It's a nice end to the volume. It's a look at, at a, at a poor lady in, in, I believe the 18th century in Maharashtra. Sorry, Polly, if, if I got the details wrong here, um, who, by virtue of being a woman, found herself with some disabilities in seeking to get the legal claims of her family. There was a murder. One of the Desha Kulkarnis got replaced by sort of a ruffian ne'er-do-well who taken the money and to get the position back into the hands of a different member of her family. She had to go to the temple, and that got the attention of the local magistrate who finally intervened. And it gives a sense of, in a world governed by Dharma Shastric norms. Being a woman can be difficult. It often was. And it limits the agency one, that one has, but it also opens up other avenues of agency. Poor um, Gotmai worked very hard to find justice for her family in a difficult world that in many ways was structured against her. And I'm glad that she did. And it ends the volume, I think, on a positive note that every now and then the good guys win in an often harsh and unjust world. Mm.
0: So those are the 17 chapters. Now, given the substantive nature of the introduction, which is not numbered, hmm. we're going we're gonna to count it. There are 18 chapters here. We, how auspicious is that? Um, but before the 18 uh, chapters, uh, there are a couple of reflections on Minkowski. We want to say a word about, you know, maybe just for the listeners, maybe just a brief sketch of his journey or... Uh, as a scholar, you know, where he was studying, you know, what kinds of things he, he got up to. How's that?
1: Yes. So if you read the introduction, there's a nice biographical account of Minkowski as an intellectual, which gives some thematic unity to the volume that these different subjects are the things that he was an expert in. And being an expert in those things is like most people's lives, based on the vicissitudes of where you go, who you study, these kinds of things. So Minkowski studied at Harvard for the BA and the PhD under the great H.H. Um, Ingalls and primarily trained as a Vedist and wrote a great book on the Maitravaruna priesthood, which also is beyond me, one of these features. <laughs> one of the things about editing in a volume like this is I learned the limits of my knowledge base. <laughs>
0: oh, <laughs> Im- Im- <laughs> imagine do- imagine <laughs> doing hundreds of podcasts with experts in the field. And yeah,
1: it's very humbling. <laughs> it's it very humbling, <laughs> that's what I was about to say. Thanks, Raj. Um, and then he went to Brown to work as... Um, professor of something like this, run a project with David Pingree. And I suppose one couldn't work with David Pingree without getting involved in Jyotishastra. As I mentioned before, working in Jyotishastra, there's a commentary from Nilakanta in the Parvan that involves all kinds of Puranic cosmological things, Jyotishastra elements, um, and and that got him into the Mahabharata. And of course, Nilakanta also has a great deal of Vedantic commentary on the Mahabharata and individual standalone Vedanta treatises, and that got Minkowski into that. Um, I feel like I've covered all of the disciplines. Perhaps I've missed one. But, you know, while that sounds extraordinary, while it sounds uncommon now, I suppose, that, that people wouldn't operate in all these different disciplines, that used to be the sort of standard panditic approach to the world, that you could operate in all these different things. And the great intellectuals in Indian history, at least in Sanskritic history, were polymaths to an extent. And maybe that's because the disciplines at the time weren't as developed as they are now. Maybe it's easier to have felicity in different disciplines when those oceans or lakes or ponds. But it gives an appreciation, at least in the modern sense, I think, for what knowledge in India would have been like in the early modern period or in the ancient period where people really did write you know, and had, I don't know, Manu memorized by a heart and had all the Paninian Sutras. And I, I doubt we're ever going to live in an age like that again, but it's nice to see an anachronistic representation of that um, in the Feshrift.
0: It's mm. a beautiful, beautiful idea. And it seems that we are in the information age where information is readily available to us. And yet, you know, perhaps we are wise to um, learn more about how to process that information, uh, really, you know, information or teachings about the human experience, you know. And so I can't help but infer that um, someone such as Minkowski, who have has studied such different branches of knowledge in a particular culture, um, what he's afforded is really a rounded perspective of the human experience, at least as articulated in ancient India, but nevertheless... Right, Uh, various uh, faculties uh, of human awareness and ingenuity that he has access into when he imagines it really gives him a sense of people-ness, if you will.
1: I think that's a wonderful sentiment, Raj. And as we're coming to the end of our time, can I just say unreservedly thank you to everyone who contributed to the volume. It took us some time. There were various snafus as it went along. but uh, Basically, everyone stuck in there. And the end result was something that I think was nice in its own right as a gift to a teacher and mentor and colleague, but also a nice contribution to the field in various ways. And I hope that despite the enormous price, 150 euros or whatever it is, that people will either buy a copy or find a PDF and take the time to read it because I think they might enjoy some bits and bobs, if not the whole thing.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
1: It's great to see you again, Raj. It's always nice to see you. Thank you so much.
0: Indeed, indeed. For those listening, we've been speaking with uh, Christopher T. Fleming, who um, is one of the four editors of a brand new Brill publication, Science and Society in the Sanskrit World. Um, until next time, um, keep listening, uh, keep reading, and keep contemplating all things Sanskrit. Take care.